Good morning, everyone. Peace be with you. Yeah, great to see you. Hey, um, before we jump in, I just want to say thank you so much. We're still getting to know each other. I was a pastor in Portland, Oregon for just shy of 20 years and stepped down about two-ish years ago now. And uh, for all good reasons, don't worry, there's no blog post. Well, there may the, maybe there's a blog post out there, I don't know, but I don't think so. Um, and uh, so the last two years I've not been teaching or in church leadership, so I'm a bit rusty and trying to get my sea legs again. But you have been such a delight to speak with and such, you've been so kind and patient and gracious with myself and our family as we are learning you as a community, learning LA, which is a bit of a steep learning curve, but a good one. And I just wanted to say thank you so much. My heart is just so full of love for who you are as a community. That said, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and once you're there, stand with me for the reading of Scripture. Let me just curate for you a short moment of silence before we read just for you to breathe, come back to your body, to the moment, and open your heart to God. Two Corinthians chapter three, verse seven to 18. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Take a seat. That is good. Last week, I told you the story of Mother Teresa when she was on 60 Minutes just before the end of her life. And the moment in the interview where Dan Rather asks her, when you pray to God, what do you say? And she's quiet, and her reply is, I don't say anything. 
I listen. But I left the story unfinished. It's not, it's not done. There's a very, if you watch the interview, there is a very awkward moment right then where professional as he is, Dan Rather is a bit thrown off and so he asked the journalistic follow-up question, okay then, when you pray to God, what does he say? And she's quiet again for a minute and she says, he doesn't say anything, he listens. <laughs> and then there's this like minor look of panic on his face where he's like, wait, what? And she cuts in before he can say anything in reply and says, and if you don't understand that, I'm sorry, but I can't explain it to you. <laughs> Mother Teresa was referring to a type of prayer that goes beyond speaking to God or even listening to God, to what St. John of the Cross in the 16th century just called silent love. Just Presence, simple presence to God, receiving the love of God and the depth of your being and giving it back in return. Over the last three weeks, we have covered three stages of prayer, talking to God or praying pre-made prayers like the Lord's Prayer or the Psalms or liturgy, talking with God, meaning just praying your own life to God through gratitude and lament and petition and intercession, and listening to God or hearing God's voice in your life. Now we come to the final stage, being with God. Now, to reiterate, these are not linear stages in that you never mature beyond one. For example, you never mature beyond the need to say thank you or to ask God for help and petition for yourself or intercession for others. If anything, the more you mature, the more you realize just how all of life is gift and just how dependent you are and how desperate you are in need for God's grace. Just like an NBA point guard never matures beyond dribbling or a rock god never matures beyond practicing his guitar or her guitar. You just, my son yesterday was on a walk and he saw a guy, it was Dave Grohl walking with his teenage daughter. He's like, hey man, are you Dave Grohl? Dave Grohl was like, yes, I'm Dave Grohl. And I'm guessing that rock God as he is, Dave is still every day practicing his guitar. We never mature beyond one stage. But there is a quasi-linear progression. In music, you start by learning basic chords and a scale, and you start by practicing the scale on your guitar, and many years later, you are on stage doing your thing. But the farther we progress in prayer, just meaning, and all I mean by that is just in our life with God, the more we desire not just to talk with God or even to listen to God, but just to be with God. As a general rule in all relationships with God or anyone, you can gauge the level of intimacy in a relationship by how comfortable you are being alone together in silence. Early on, relationships are full of a lot of words and activity, and that's not bad at all. But as you grow closer, you continue to talk and do things and go on outings, but you're more and more at ease in each other's company, and there are times when you desire to just be at rest together. Whether it's with a friend or a family member or a lover, all human analogies fall short here. 
But in marriage, there is a level of intimacy that is literally the intermingling of persons at the deepest level that is wordless or even thoughtless, yet is deeply loving. That for thousands of years, Christian contemplatives have always said is an icon or like a symbolic window into the reality of what our spiritual ancestors called union with God. And whether that is your language or not, I'm guessing that many of you in the room this morning ache for union with God, for a felt sense of God's presence and more an experience of his love. How do we move toward that, toward union with God? The short answer is through the pathway of prayer. Now the type of prayer that I'm referring to this morning has come to be called contemplation, which is language that comes straight out of the New Testament, in particular right here in Corinthians. This is a very hard passage to drop into because it's very dense and complex. At a glance, this passage is a compare and contrast between the Old Covenant, or another name for that is the Old Testament, God's old way of being in relationship with Israel, the people of God prior to Jesus, and the New Covenant, or the New Testament, God's new way of being with a new people of God, a new Jew plus Gentile family or humanity that we call the church. It's between Moses and Jesus, between the law or the Torah and the spirit of God, between an era where God's presence was in a cloud on Mount Sinai and then later inside and over the tabernacle and then the temple and one person and one person only had access to what was called the Holy of Holies, the locus point of God's presence and an era where all of us who have been baptized into Christ now have direct access to that same presence of God that is now in our mind, in our body, in our community together. As St. Augustine said, closer in us than we are to ourselves. And the writer Paul's basic case is that the new covenant is much better. It's, quote, more glorious than the old one. Not because the old was bad, but because it was for a time to hold Israel over until the coming of Jesus. But now, on the other side of Jesus' incarnation and life and teachings and death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father and with the promise of his soon return to make all things new, to end all violence, all evil, all pain, now all of us can, in a way, follow Moses' example. And if you've read that story, and if not, go read it on your own time, where Moses would go into the tabernacle, into the tent, into the Holy of Holies, and stand, quote, face to face with God, whatever that means. And he would come out, and his face would literally radiate glory. It's like it was glowing. And he would cover it with a veil to hide the fact that day over day, it would begin to fade away. Now all of us at some level can follow his example and in prayer turn to face God. Let me draw your attention just to the climax of this beautiful passage. Look with me at verse 18 and let's just kind of work through it. 
Again, Paul writes, and we all, and this is not all human beings, this is all who have been baptized into Christ, who with unveiled faces, and there's a play on both kind of, imagine if Moses were to take his veil off there in the tabernacle just like that, contemplate the Lord's glory. The word that's translated contemplate is katotrizo in Greek. Can you say that? Katotrizo, there you go, well done. It literally means just to gaze at or to direct the inner gaze of your heart at or to stand in attention on God's glory is the word used by Paul. Now, glory is a bit of a tricky word because what it means in the New Testament and in the old, in the library of scripture, is very different from what it means in kind of modern parlance, where I think of like country music awards or the Grammys, where inevitably somebody like has the award and they're like, all glory to God, and it's about a song about a one night stand or whatever it is, and it's like, (laughs) I don't think you know what that word means, bro. Um, But glory, like we use it to mean like fame or celebrity status or glory to a credit to a person. It's not what it means in scripture. In scripture, um, in the Old Testament, in the story of Israel, the glory of God was the cloud, the Shekinah is the Hebrew word. It's a hard word to translate because it's, it's God's tangible presence in a mysterious way over Mount Sinai and then the tabernacle and then the temple. It's God's presence and his beauty and his goodness. So Paul is saying as we as we take the veil off, as we direct our attention and as we contemplate, we gaze at with our heart God's presence and his beauty and his goodness, it does something to us. We are, next line, being transformed. So being, whatever it does, it's a slow, in-process thing, transformed into his image. The word transformed is metamorpho in Greek. It's where we get the English word metamorphos, the word for how a caterpillar is transformed into a butterfly. One lexicon defines it as to change the essential form or nature of something, meaning it's not a minor tweak in behavior modification. It is a deep, substantive, radical overhaul of our inner essence. That is the word used by Paul and the writers of the New Testament for the level of change, healing, growth, transformation in our person that is possible in God, what we call spiritual formation. But Paul's writing, it is an ongoing process. We are being transformed, not a one-time event, with ever-increasing glory, meaning just incremental, it's slow, just a little bit more glory at a time. And then he writes, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, meaning this transformation of our essence into people who are like God does not come from us. It doesn't come from willpower, from hearing sermons and reading books and just trying really hard to be like God. It comes from the Spirit's power welling up inside. To summarize, Paul is saying, as we contemplate God, as we gaze at God, as we look deeply into God's face, so to speak, we are transformed into people who are like God. Now, the practice of this has come to be called contemplation or contemplative prayer. And that word means different things at different times in church history, and I'm going to discipline myself to not nerd out on you right now. But at a broad level, there are three basic dimensions to contemplative prayer, looking, yielding, and resting. 
Let me give you just a short word on each. The first is looking at God, looking at you in love. The Presbyterian retreat leader, Marjorie Thompson, tells this beautiful story about an elderly peasant farmer in Europe who every day would go into the local kind of parish church building and just sit there in a pew for hours at a time. And at one point, the priest comes up to him and says, what are you doing here all day, all for hours at a time, every day, what are you doing? And the old man just says, I look at him, he looks at me, and we are happy. That's contemplation. I look at him, he looks at me, and we are happy. Older generations, before we kind of call this contemplative prayer, older generations on the Protestant stream of the church called this beholding prayer. Um, because in it we behold or we gaze in wonder at the beauty of God. I was up in Santa Barbara yesterday and we were kind of camping-ish in this grove of old sycamore trees that were like old growth, beautiful. And I found myself just walking past them a couple of times and realizing I'm walking past staggering beauty that somehow has made it through the fire. And then I had to just stop at one minute and behold the tree and just take in and gaze at and contemplate the wonder and awe and beauty of this extraordinary miracle of life. And how often do we, so this is what we do when we go backpacking or hiking or we look at a piece of art in a museum, we behold. But how often do we just run through life passing by staggering beauty, never giving it the time to slow down long enough to behold? How often do we pass by the staggering beauty of God? This beholding or contemplation of the beauty of God, it's the essence of our faith. A.W. Tozer once said this, faith is not a once done act, but a continuous gaze of the heart at the triune God. Believing then is directing the heart's attention to Jesus. It is lifting the mind to behold the Lamb of God and never ceasing that beholding for the rest of our lives. At first, this may be difficult, but it becomes easier as we look steadily at his wondrous person, quietly and without strain. Distractions may hinder, but once the heart is committed to him, after each brief excursion away from him, the attention will return again and rest upon him like a wandering bird coming back to its window. Of course, this raises the question, how do we look at a God who is invisible, a God our eyes cannot see? You may find this helpful. There was a medieval intellectual monk, St. Bonaventure, who said, we each have three eyes. This is a medieval paradigm, not a modern one, but I find it helpful. The eye of the body, by which we see the world around us. The eye of the mind, by which we see the world within us, thoughts, ideas, concepts, linear plans and the eye of the heart, by which he said we see God, and he said we see the spirit of another human being. As the Eastern Saint Theophan the Recluse put it, by the way, why do I have to be a Protestant? Why can't I get a cool name like that? 
To pray is to descend with the mind into the heart, meaning to descend with your directed attention into a deeper part of you and there to stand before the face of the Lord ever present, all seen within you. St. John of the Cross said in this type of prayer, we just remain in loving attention on God. Simone Weil, the French intellectual, said attention taken to its highest degree is the same thing as prayer. And this is the most basic aspect of contemplation, loving attention on God the Father and on his love and compassion and goodwill coming toward you in Christ and being poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, it's yielding to his love. There's a type of prayer where we are trying to change what is, petition and intercession, and that is good and necessary in the right place. But there is another type where you're not trying to change what is, but accept what is and surrender to it and make peace with it. Think of Jesus in Gethsemane. He begins by praying, Father, let this cup pass from me. He's trying to change the circumstances of pain and suffering in his life and world. But he ends by praying, nevertheless, not my will, but what? Yours be done. This yielding, this Letting go of outcomes, this emotional release of the illusion of control over our life, this surrender of our will to the presence and the purposes of God is at the heart of contemplative prayer. The late professor Robert Mulholland of Asbury said this about contemplation. It is the deep inner posture of a joyful release of our life and being to God in absolute trust, without demands, without conditions, without reservation. It is neither a passive resignation nor a fatalistic acquiescence to whatever comes. It is rather a consistent posture of actively turning our whole being to God so that God's presence, purpose, and power can be released through our lives into all situations. It's just God, here I am. I surrender, I yield, your will be done. Finally, it is resting in God's love. There is a type of prayer that feels like work. And there is a type of prayer that feels more like rest. And both are good and necessary. Asking, whether it is petition for yourself or intercession for another, feels more like work because it is work. You are in prayer. That's one framework for intercessory prayer and petition. You are co-laboring with God to bring to birth God's kingdom in your life and your world. Like a mother just laboring in childbirth or a midwife laboring with the spirit of God to birth God's future. But contemplative prayer feels less like work and more like rest, more like a portable Sabbath. Orthodox Jews forbid all intercessory prayer on the Sabbath. Not because intercessory prayer is bad, but because the Sabbath is not a day to ask for what you yet lack. It is a day to celebrate and give thanks and delight in what you have. This is why it feels very different from the first three stages of prayer. In classical spirituality, which is kind of a, a medieval, kind of very uh, scholastic and academic approach to Christian spirituality, contemplative prayer is like a stage that you reach, and in that framework, it's always a work of grace. 
meaning contemplative prayer is not something you go out and you do. It's something you wait, you posture yourself before God and you wait for the gift of grace that you cannot control. You wait for God to grace you with contemplation. This is why it feels very different from the previous three stages. We can't control it or make it happen. It's less something we do and more something God does in and through us. Ultimately, we just come to rest in his love. And that is mostly what prayer is. The medium through which we experience the love of God. It's how we experience the answer to Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter three. You may know this. If not, it is worth memorization. I pray that out of his glorious riches, meaning God is not poor, he has plenty of spiritual wealth to go around, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell, live, make his home in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in biblical knowledge. No, in spiritual disciplines. No, in church attendance. No, all good things. Rooted and established in what? Love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. What a line. Paul is anything but anti-intellectual. He's a savant. He's a genius. But here he's saying, if you want to borrow language from neuroscience, it's our implicit knowledge of God, not just our explicit knowledge, meaning it's not just head knowledge and reading books and hearing sermons and believing the right Christian doctrines about the love of God. You've got to know it in your gut. You've got to know in your body the love of Christ for you. You have to receive it deep into the implicit memory of your body that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This type of prayer is how we are filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. In a modern world, and in particular in a city like L.A., where so many of us live in a state of chronic fatigue from our performance-driven culture, where we're just performing and posturing and brand managing and like just exhibiting our life to the world, trying to receive love. This type of prayer, just resting in and receiving the gift of God's love for you Receiving your identity as a son or a daughter. Identity not based on what you do or what you have or what other people think of you or how many whatever, but based on who you are loved by. And then just offering a tiny fraction of that love back in worship. This is a lifeline to sanity and to joy in an insane time. It comes as no surprise that in Paul's framework for spiritual formation, contemplation or contemplative prayer is at the crux of how we are formed or transformed is the word that was used in this passage into people of love in God. And this makes perfect sense. The Singaporean writer Hui Hui Tan once said this, you are what your mind looks at, you are what you contemplate. 
I mean, think about it. People who spend hours every day reading political news. What, whether it's your like 22-year-old humanities buddy or friend or your grandpa, like, are they nice? Kind, open-minded, mental dexterity, a real grasp on the complexity of the human condition and the resistance of the human heart to any external models of change and just a real sense of the mystery of life and the sacred gift and that there really is no other and we're all deeply broken and yet deeply loved. Is that, is that kind of what they're like, huh? You know, just amazing. No, they're not like that at all. People who spend hours every day scrolling on social media tend to become anxious, angry, insecure, vain, shallow, performative, dishonest. People who spend hours every day watching dirty TV tend to become lustful, compulsive, addictive, lonely. We become like whatever it is we gaze on, whether it's the TV or the Trinity. Therefore, the yellow line down the middle of the pathway to becoming like Jesus is looking at Jesus. This is how God designed your brain to grow and develop. I know just enough science to embarrass myself, but your brain is full of mere neurons that cause us to take on the properties of whatever it is that you and I look at. When someone smiles at you, what do you do? Smile, well, some of you smile. Apparently, some of you don't. Theoretically, you smile back, right? When somebody glares at you, I, I had the worst experience. I don't know if I should tell this story in case the person's in here, in which case, so much love to you. Um, <laughs> but I'm sitting at dinner a couple of nights ago, outside, patio. I'm loving my life. I just moved from 20 years in exile in the rain and the cold of the Pacific Northwest. I'm eating dinner outside in November. And I don't care if the fish taco is any good. I'm eating outside in November and just full of glory of God. Anyway, sitting there with a couple of friends and all of a sudden there's this maybe, I don't know, mid-30-something kind of woman holding the hand of like, I don't know, a five-year-old walking down the sidewalk who locks eye contact with me and starts staring at me. I'm like, I don't recognize her. And then she just glares at me and does this with her finger. And I'm like, what, what have I done? I don't even know you. Do you go to vintage? Did I say something Sunday? Do you hate me? Ah, like my mind does all of this right away, you know? And just, it's the weirdest thing for about eight feet just is looking at me doing this. And then she just goes, I'm like 10 feet away from her at a table with like six people. She just goes, never have children. And keeps and then just stares at me and walks off. It's like, where were you 18 years ago, lady? No, I'm kidding. I was like, oh my gosh. But in that, I was like, Lord, have mercy on you. We've all been there. Any parents been there? Most of us have kept it to ourselves. Uh, but I'm an internal processor, verbal processor. Okay. Uh, with a, that was weird. But in that moment when she glared at me, my whole body went into like, 
Like, that was my mirror neurons doing their thing. And again, this is actually how God wired you. We are interdependent, communal, relational souls built for relationship with other people. The neuroscientist Andrew Newberg in his book, How God Changes Your Brain, he's not a Christian, but he is brilliant and has a really high view of Christian faith. He writes this, if you contemplate God long enough, something surprising happens in the brain. Neural functioning begins to change. We have a nervous system that actively participates in its own neural construction. This is what, you know, you, I'm sure you're familiar with the language of neuroplasticity, how what you direct your mind to actually has the power to rewire the formation of your brain. Basically, there's this little part of our brain called the anterior cingulate that sits between our limbic and prefrontal structure. And when it's stimulated, it decreases our impulses of anger and fear and increases our feelings of compassion. When we contemplate on or meditate on God and his love coming toward us in Christ and by the Spirit, it stimulates our interior cingulate. And he writes it, quote, appears to strengthen the same neurological circuits that allow us to feel compassion toward others. Very simply, as we think on the love of God coming toward our inner being, it literally rewires our brain and makes us more calm, compassionate, loving people. By the way, the opposite, he writes, is also true. If your view of God is of an angry authoritarian tyrant in the sky, that also changes your brain and gives you, he argues, very similar uh, characteristics at a mental neurological level to PTSD. Makes you more fearful and aggressive. The Anglican bishop William Temple once observed that if people have a wrong view of God, the more religious they become, the worse they become. Until they reach a point where he says it would have been better for them to have been atheists. This is why it is incredibly important to think Christianly or Christianly about God, not based on what the right says or the left says or this algorithm or this ideology says, but what Jesus says and who Jesus is. Another ang sure, there you go. You almost started something unsuccessfully, but I, I appreciate the love. I, I, I'm feeling the love. I'm feel no, 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 now it's forced. No. <laughs> oh. We can never forget what another Anglican, <laughs> that was a nice moment, thank you for that. <laughs> We can never forget what another Anglican Michael Ramsey once said, that God is Christ-like and in him is no unchristlikeness at all. But just this act of looking at Christ, contemplating Christ, beholding the beauty of Christ, has the raw power to transform us into people who are like Christ. It is written in Psalm 34, those who look to him are radiant language hearkening back to Moses and his radiant face in the tabernacle. As we look at God's beauty, we are transformed into people who are more beautiful. As we look at the joy and delight and celebration at the heart of the Trinity, we are transformed into people who are more joyful. As we are enveloped in the inner peace between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we are slowly but surely transformed into people who are calm and tranquil and at peace in God. This is the gift of contemplative prayer.
And contemplative prayer isn't just for Mother Teresa. It's not just for monks and nuns and introverts. Anyone can, and I would argue should, pray contemplatively. But that's not to say it's easy. Anyone can do it, but it's hard. You will face at least three major challenges. And just for the record, I'm all about spiritual realism. I'm not going to give you the sales pitch to a fault. I don't want to scare you away. I want to prepare you to practice this week. The first major uh, challenge you will face is distraction. The moment you begin to sit in loving attention on God without words, your brain will start to go all over the place, right? You're there this morning. You're sitting before, hypothetical, this is not about me. Um, You're sitting there before God. There's a very fleeting moment of bliss. And then you realize my car is really dirty because we went camping. I just moved here. I still can't find a place to wash my car. Californians have people come to their house and wash their car. That's such a rich person thing. I absolutely am not doing that. But where am I going to go? Can I go after church? I don't know. But then I'm driving that place Tuesday. Maybe it's going to get dirty. And like, oh, the love of God, yes. Coming back to the love, that was hypothetical. That did not happen to me this morning at all. Distraction does not, by the way, if there's a good car wash around here, will somebody tell me? (laughs) Because distraction does not mean that you are bad at prayer. It means that you are a human being. And you have a brain, and you have neural synapses, and you have a mind, and you have survival instincts in you. Your mind is jumpy and distractible. That is a normal and natural part of your brain's inner workings. And while it can be calmed and quieted over time with much dedicated practice, distraction will never go away. And in seasons of stress, where your brain clicks up into that scanning the horizon for threats kind of mode, it will get worse no matter how much you love God or how devoted you are to prayer. The key to quieting distractions is not to give them a second thought, literally. When you realize you're three minutes into car wash scenario number one, and you realize, shoot, I'm trying to pray right now. Don't beat yourself up, don't berate yourself, don't go Google car washes, just let it go. Come back to God. Thomas Keating, the monk whose book Open Mind, Open Heart is the seminal work on what he calls centering prayer, a form of contemplative prayer, has this beautiful insight. He just writes about how if your mind gets distracted a thousand times in 10 minutes of prayer, that's a thousand chances to come back to God and to come back to the love of God. I don't know, I think of this through the lens of parenting, but whether it's with a friend or a coworker, anyone, if they could not pay attention to you for more than about 10 seconds at a time, you would just be full of annoyance at them and frustration and why cannot you pay attention to me? How must God feel when we're just all over the place? And yet every time we come back, there's the steady love of God coming toward you in Christ. It is an experience, not just of God, but of his mercy and his love. Secondly, we have to face our hurry. To be with God in this way, you must, as the philosopher Dallas Willard once said, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. But this will force you to confront your and my impatience and how quickly we get bored in prayer and in life. Henry Nouwen once called prayer wasting time on God. He did not mean that prayer is a waste of time. He meant that in our productivity-obsessed culture where time is money and money is God, 
where entertainment and digital stimulation fill every crook and crevice of our life. Spending time in prayer, in particular this type of slow, quiet, meditative prayer, feels like a waste of time. But for those who have come to realize the main thing you get out of prayer is not like an answer to your prayer to make rent that month or whatever, as important as that is. The main thing you get out of prayer is God, not anything from God. You come to realize that and it is worth every minute, every hour, every everything. And I wish I could tell you that this type of prayer is quick and easy and if you follow these three simple steps, boom, you're in flow state with the Trinity. But the reality is, if your mind is anything like mine, this will take you a bit. It's not quick, it's not efficient, it's not work, it's more like resting, but at the same time it's not very easy. And yet if you touch that well at the base of your soul, will some deep part of you that does not show up in the laboratory when the neuroscientists put you through the MRI, some deep part of us that is more real of you than your liver or your brain or any of that, where that part of you touches God. You get in touch with that, you'll never want anything else in life. Everything else will just be bonus. Finally, the third challenge we face is our inner turmoil. Whatever is in us down there will come up to the surface in prayer. Love, gratitude, joy, anger, hate, bitterness, recrimination, desire for vengeance, wounding, anxiety, whatever is there will come up. Thomas Keating said when we first come to quiet before prayer, in prayer, the first thing that happens is what he called the unloading of the unconscious. Meaning all this stuff we've been pressing down through hurry and busyness and distraction and work and social media, all of it, no distraction, it comes up which is why so many people begin to pray this way and they're like, nah, I'm, I'm out. I want nothing to do with that and run in the other direction, even if the other direction is the Bible study or scripture or good things that, that keep the darkness at bay. I understand it can be terrifying, but it's not. All of that's in you. What better place for it to come up than under the loving gaze of God looking at you in love? And what happens is it comes out it meets God's love and then, like a marine layer burning off under the sun, it just slowly but surely goes. And you're left there with the love of God. Therefore, in light of these challenges, and there are more by the way, you will quickly realize that to pray contemplatively, you need to adopt a contemplative lifestyle. Because as a general rule, how you are outside of prayer is how you will be inside of prayer. So if you are hurried and chronically over busy and stressed out and constantly on your phone outside of prayer and then you sit down in the morning to be like Jesus Zen, good luck with that, right? I get it, we're human, I understand that. But one way of thinking about discipleship to Jesus in the modern era is about slowing your life down to pray about relearning to live at a slower, less hurried, more contemplative, more prayerful pace where you don't blitz past the sycamore trees all around you, but you see 
the beauty of God and your life with God. To that end, as we come to the end of our four-week practice, we just have one exercise for you. It's in your guide. There's a bunch more detail in there. It's basically just to begin your daily prayer rhythm with silence and a breath prayer. Whether you pray in the morning or a guy chatted to this last hour has been praying on his run every morning, 42-minute run, he said, 20 minutes of talking to God, 20 minutes of listening to God. However you pray, whenever you pray, the practice is just to pause for a few minutes and sit in God's love. One way to do that is through an ancient form of prayer that goes back to the Desert Fathers. They just called it a breath prayer. Um, it's like, it's similar to mindfulness, but it's radically different because you are not just being present to what is, you're being present to who God is. But it's similar in that you just attend to your breathing, you let your mind focus on the breath, come to your body, come to the moment, you often use a prayer word, just like Father, come Holy Spirit, whatever you want, whatever is helpful for you. And you just attune, you look with that eye of the heart at God looking at you in love. And this simple form of prayer can just slow you down, put you back in your body, back in the moment, and get you back in touch with that well, that base at the well of your soul where God is. We also have a reach exercise on beholding prayer that's available for you. To end our time together, let me just repeat one more time. Prayer is not a technique. Yes, there's technique in it and exercises and stuff you can do, but all of that is for us. It's not for God. Prayer is the medium by which we experience and we open to the love of God in Christ by the Spirit. And the most important discipline of prayer is just to show up every single day and make space, whether it's for two minutes or two hours, just make space for God to transform you through all the highs and the lows and the chaos and the heartache and the joy of life and over a long period of time. I'm coming off, a, 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 honestly, a pretty lousy week. We, we just moved to LA three months ago. It turns out that moving with three teenagers to a new city is a tad stressful. And uh, it's going, I guess, well, but in a miserable kind of way, if that makes sense. And this last week, it just all came to a head. I think there's five of us. I think every one of us got in a fight with the other at some point this week, and uh, a couple of them were a doozy. And then last night, I'm, you know, finishing my sermon on becoming a person who is transformed into love and compassion as I'm nursing recrimination in my heart at certain family members I won't name and full of guilt and shame about what just said. Ah, why do we hurt the ones we love the most? Such deep brokenness in my body. And if you think that's me making that up to make you feel better about yourself, it is not. That is me downplaying how bad I actually am. Trust me. And when I woke up this morning with that glorious extra hour of sleep and I made coffee, I sat there in the living room, I watched the sunrise, and I prayed. And there was no zap from heaven that just put me in the like bliss zone of awesomeness. But there was a quiet welling up at the base of my soul, the love of God.
that gave me the buoyancy to live and love another day. And I will fail today, I will drop the ball, I will miss it, I already have. And that same love will be there tomorrow morning and the next and the next. And that same love is available to you. There's a line at AA meetings, those of you that have been in recovery. You come to the end of the meeting and there's that beautiful line, keep coming back, it works. Or I think the full version is keep coming back, it works if you work it, so work it, you're worth it. That's so beautiful. And that could be said of daily prayer. Keep coming back through the highs, through the lows, when the night before you were up late fighting with your spouse or doing something you shouldn't have been doing, when you wake up to shame and regret, keep coming back to the love of God, the compassion and mercy of God pouring out through Christ and by the Spirit into the depth of who you are. Keep looking at God and let him transform you into a person of love. Let's stand together and pray. just want to give you a short moment in the busyness of the morning to just breathe and in the silence find that base at the bottom of your soul. Open whatever manhole cover or lock is over it. Just open your inner self to God and his love.